Chapter Twelve of the Secret Service by Albert Richardson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Maria Casper. Chapter Twelve. Who can be loyal and neutral in a moment? No man. Macbeth. Why this it is when men are ruled by women. Richard the Third. It was a relief to escape the excitement and bitterness of Missouri, and spend a few quiet days in the free states. Despite rebel predictions, grass did not grow in the streets of Chicago. In sooth it wore neither an Arcadian nor a funereal aspect. Palatial buildings were everywhere rising. Sixty railway trains arrived and departed daily. Hotels were crowded with guests and the voice of the artisan was heard in the land. Michigan Avenue, the finest drive in America, skirting the lake shore for a mile and a half, was crowded every evening with swift vehicles, and its sidewalks thronged with leisurely pedestrians. It afforded scope to one of the two leading characteristics of Chicago residents, which are holding the ribbons and leaving out the latch-string. I did not hear a single cry of bread or blood. As the city had over two million bushels of corn in store, and had received eighteen million bushels of grain during the previous six months, starvation was hardly imminent. War or peace, currency or no currency, breadstuffs will find a market. Corn, not cotton, is king. The great Northwest, instead of Dixieland, wields the scepter of imperial power. The elasticity of the new states is wonderful. Wisconsin and Illinois had lost about ten millions of dollars through the depreciation of their currency within a few months. It caused embarrassment and stringency, but no wreck or ruin. Reminiscences of the financial chaos were entertaining. New York Exchange once reached thirty per cent. The Illinois Central Railroad Company paid $22,500 premium on a single draft. For a few weeks before the crash, everybody was afraid of the currency, and yet everybody received it. People were seized with a sudden desire to pay up. The course of nature was reversed. Debtors absolutely pursued their creditors, and creditors dodged them, as swindlers dodged the sheriff parsimonious husbands supplied their wives bounteously with means to do family shopping for months ahead there was a run upon those feminine paradises the dry-goods stores while the merchants were by no means anxious to sell suddenly prices went up as if by magic then came a grand crisis currency dropped fifty per cent and one morning the city woke up to find itself poorer by just half than it was the night before the banks, with their usual feline sagacity, alighted upon their feet, while depositors had to stand the loss. Persons who settled in Chicago when it was only a military post, many hundred miles in the Indian country, relate stories of the days when they sometimes spent three months on schooners coming from Buffalo. Later settlers, too, offer curious reminiscences. In 1855, a merchant purchased a tract of unimproved land near the lake, outside the city limits, for $1,200, one-fourth in cash. Before his next payment, a railroad traversed one sandy, worthless corner of it, 
and the company paid him damages to the amount of eleven hundred dollars before the end of the third year when his last installment of three hundred dollars became due he sold the land to a company of speculators for twenty one thousand five hundred dollars it is now assessed at something over one hundred thousand on a july day so cold that fires were comforting within doors and overcoats and buffalo robes requisite without i visited the grave of senator douglas unmarked as yet by monumental stone he rests near his old home and a few yards from the lake which was sobbing and moaning in stormy passion as the great white-fringed waves chased each other upon the sandy shore with the arrival of each railway train from the east long files of immigrants from norway and northern germany come pouring up dearborn street gazing curiously and hopefully at their new land of promise one of the many railroad lines had brought twenty-five hundred within two weeks there were gray-haired men and young children all were attired neatly especially the women with snow-white kerchiefs about their heads they were bound mainly for wisconsin and minnesota men and women are the best wealth of a new country though nearly all poor these brought with the fair hair and blue eyes of their fatherland honesty frugality and industry as their contribution to that great crucible which after all its strange elements are fused shall pour forth the pure and shining metal of american character missouri at the commencement of the war had two hundred thousand germans in a population of little more than one million almost to a man they were loyal and among the first who sprang to arms in the south they were always regarded with suspicion the rebels succeeded in dragooning but very few of them into their ranks honor to the loyal germans according to some unknown philosopher an englishman or a yankee is capital an irishman is labor but a german is capital and labor both cincinnati at the outbreak of the rebellion contained about seventy thousand german citizens who for many years had contributed largely to her growth and prosperity a visit to their distinctive locality called over the rhine with its german daily papers german signs and german conversation is a peep at fatherland cincinnati is nearer than hamburg the miami canal more readily crossed than the atlantic and that sweet german accent with which general scott was once enraptured is no less musical in the queen city than in the land of schiller and goethe why then should one go to germany unless indeed like bayard taylor he goes for a wife the multitudinous maidens light-eyed and blond-haired in these german streets would seem to remove even that excuse when young america becomes jovial he takes four or five boon companions to a drinking saloon pours down half a glass of raw brandy and lights a cigar continuing this program through the day he ends perhaps by being carried home on a shutter or conducted to the watch-house but the german at the close of the summer day strolls with his wife and two or three of his twelve children the orthodox number in well-regulated teutonic families to one of the great airy halls or gardens abounding in his portion of the city calling for rhine wine 
Catawba, or zwei glas lager beer und zwei pretzel they sit an hour or two chatting with friends and then return to their homes like rational beings after rational enjoyment the halls contain hundreds of people who gesticulate more and talk louder during their mildest social intercourse than the same number of americans would in an affray causing the murder of half the company but the presence of women and children guarantees decorous language and deportment the laws of migration are curious one is that people ordinarily go due west the massachusetts man goes to northern ohio wisconsin or minnesota the ohioan to kansas the tennesseean to southern missouri the mississippian to texas great excitements like those of kansas and california draw men off their parallel of latitude but this is the general law another is that the irish remain near the sea coast while the germans seek the interior they constitute four-fifths of the foreign population of every western city in seventeen eighty eight a few months before the first settlement of cincinnati seven hundred and forty acres of land were bought for five hundred dollars that tract is now the heart of the city and appraised at many millions as it passed from hand to hand colossal fortunes were realized from it but its original purchaser then one of the largest western landowners at his death did not leave property enough to secure against want his surviving son until eighteen sixty two that son resided in cincinnati a pensioner upon the bounty of relatives as in the autumn of life he walked the streets of that busy city it must have been a strange reflection that among all its broad acres of which his father was sole proprietor he did not own land enough for his last resting place give him a little earth for charity many high artificial mounds circular and elliptical stood here when the city was founded in after years as they were leveled one by one they revealed relics of that ancient and comparatively civilized race which occupied this region before the indian and was probably identical with the aztecs of mexico upon the site of one of these mounds is pike's opera house a gorgeous edifice erected at an expense of half a million dollars by a cincinnati distiller who fifteen years before could not obtain credit for his first dray load of whiskey barrels it is one of the finest theatres in the world but the site has more interest than the building what volumes of unwritten history has that spot witnessed which supports a temple of art and fashion for the men and women of to-day was once a post from which indian sentinels overlooked the dark and bloody ground beyond the river and in earlier ages an altar where priests of a semi-barbaric race performed mystic rites to propitiate heathen gods cincinnati was built by a woman its founder was neither carpenter nor speculator but in the legitimate feminine pursuit of winning hearts seventy years ago columbia north bend and cincinnati all splendid cities on paper were rivals each aspiring to be the metropolis of the west columbia was largest north bend most favorably located and cincinnati least promising of all 
but an army officer sent out to establish a military post for protecting frontier settlers against indians was searching for a site fascinated by the charms of a dark-eyed beauty wife of one of the north bend settlers that location impressed him favorably and he made it headquarters the husband disliking the officer's pointed attentions came to cincinnati and settled thus he supposed removing his wife from temptation but as mark antony threw the world away for cleopatra's lips this humbler son of mars counted the military advantages of north bend as nothing compared with his charmer's eyes he promptly followed to cincinnati and erected fort washington within the present city limits proximity to a military post settled the question as it has all similar ones in the history of the west now cincinnati is the largest inland city upon the continent columbia is an insignificant village and north bend an excellent farm in architecture cincinnati is superior to its western rivals and rapidly gaining upon the most beautiful seaboard cities some of its squares are unexcelled in america a few public buildings are imposing but its best structures have been erected by private enterprise the cincinnatian is expansive narrow quarters torture him he can live in a cottage but he must do business in a palace an inferior brick building is the spectre of his life and a freestone block his undying ambition from the queen city i went to louisville though communication with the south had been cut off by every other route the railroad was open thence to nashville kentucky was disputed ground treason and loyalty jostled each other in strange proximity at the breakfast table one looked up from his new york paper forty-eight hours old to see his nearest neighbor perusing the charleston mercury he found the louisville courier urging the people to take up arms against the government the journal published just across the street advised union men to arm themselves and announced that any of them wanting first-class revolvers could learn something to their advantage by calling upon its editor in the telegraph office the loyal agent of the associated press who made up dispatches for the north chatted with the secessionist who spiced his news for the southern palate on the street one heard union men advocate the hanging of governor magoffin and declare that he and his fellow traitors should find the collision they threatened a bloody business at the same moment some inebriated cavalier reeled by shouting uproariously huzza for jeff davis here a group of pale long-haired young men was pointed out as enlisted rebel soldiers just leaving for the south there a troop of the sinewy long-limbed mountaineers of kentucky and east tennessee marched sturdily toward the river to join the loyal forces upon the indiana shore two or three state guards secession with muskets on their shoulders were closely followed by a trio of home guards union also armed it was wonderful that with all these crowding combustibles no explosion had yet occurred in the kentucky powder magazine while secessionists were numerous louisville at heart loyal everywhere displayed the national flag 
yet although the people tore to pieces a secession banner which floated from a private dwelling they were very tolerant toward the rebels who openly recruited for the southern service imagine a man huzzaing for president lincoln and advertising a federal recruiting office in any city controlled by the confederates the real governor of kentucky said a southern paper is not beriah mcgoffin but george d prentice in spite of his neutrality which for a time threatened to stretch out to the crack of doom mr prentice was a thorn in the side of the enemy his strong influence through the louisville journal was felt throughout the state visiting his editorial rooms i found him over an appalling pile of public and private documents dictating an article for his paper many years ago an attack of paralysis nearly disabled his right hand and compelled him ever after to employ an amanuensis his small round face was fringed with dark hair a little silvered by age but his eyes gleamed with their early fire and his conversation scintillated with that ready wit which made him the most famous paragraphist in the world his manner was exceedingly quiet and modest for about three-fourths of the year he was one of the hardest workers in the country often sitting at his table twelve hours a day and writing two or three columns for a morning issue at this time the kentucky unionists advocating only neutrality dared not urge open and uncompromising support of the government when president lincoln first called for troops the journal denounced his appeal in terms almost worthy of the charleston mercury expressing its mingled amazement and indignation of course the kentuckians were subjected to very bitter criticism mr prentice said to me you misapprehend us in the north we are just as much for the union as you are those of us who pray pray for it those of us who fight are going to fight for it but we know our own people they require very tender handling just trust us and let us alone and you shall see us come out all right by and by the state election held a few weeks after exposed the groundless alarm of the leading politicians it resulted in returning to congress from every district but one zealous union men afterward the state furnished troops whenever they were called for and in spite of her timid leaders finally yielded gracefully to the inexorable decree of the war touching her pet institution of slavery i paid a visit to the encampment of the kentucky union troops on the indiana side of the ohio opposite louisville camp joe holt was on a high grassy plateau unfailing springs supplied it with pure water and trees of beech oak elm ash maple and sycamore overhung it with grateful shade the prospective soldiers were lying about on the ground or reading and writing in their tents general rousseau who was sitting upon the grass chatting with a visitor looked the kentuckian large head with straight dark hair and moustache eye and mouth full of determination broad chest huge erect manly frame his men were sinewy fellows with serious earnest faces most of them were from the mountain districts many had been hunters from boyhood and could bring a squirrel from the tallest tree with their old rifles byron's description of their ancestral backwoodsmen seemed to fit them exactly 
and tall and strong and swift of foot were they beyond the dwarfing city's pale abortions because their thoughts had never been the prey of care or gain the green woods were their portions simple they were not savage and their rifles though very true were yet not used for trifles the history of this brigade was characteristic of the times rousseau scouted neutrality from the outset on the twenty first of may he said from his place in the kentucky senate if we have a government let it be maintained and obeyed if a factious minority undertakes to override the will of a majority and rob us of our constitutional rights let it be put down peaceably if we can but forcibly if we must let me tell you sir kentucky will not go out she will not stampede secessionists must invent something new before they can either frighten or drag her out of the union we shall be but too happy to keep peace but we cannot leave the union of our fathers when kentucky goes down it will be in blood let that be understood in that legislature the struggle between the secessionists and the loyalists was fierce protracted and uncertain each day had its accidents incidents telegraphic and newspaper excitements upon which the action of the body seemed to depend in firm and determined men the two parties were about equally divided but there were a good many floats who held the balance of power these men were very tenderly nursed by the loyalists the secessionists frequently proposed to go into secret session but the union men steadfastly refused rousseau declared in the senate that if they closed the doors he would break them open as he stands about six feet two and is very muscular the threat had some significance buckner tillman and hanson all afterward generals in the rebel army led the secessionists they professed to be loyal and were very shrewd and plausible they induced hundreds of young men to join the state guard which they were organizing to force kentucky out of the union though its ostensible object was to assure neutrality footnote the leniency of the government toward these men was remarkable for many months after the war began breckinridge in the united states senate and burnett in the house of representatives uttered defiant treason for which they were not only pardoned but paid by the government they were attempting to overthrow as late as august eighteen sixty one after bull run after wilson creek buckner visited washington and was allowed to inspect the fortifications and went almost directly thence to richmond when he next returned to kentucky it was at the head of an invading rebel army End footnote. state rights was their watchword for kentucky neutrality first and should the conflict be forced upon them for the south against the north they worked artfully upon the southern partiality for that doctrine that allegiance is due first to the state and only secondly to the national government governor magoffin and lieutenant governor porter were bitter rebels the legislature made a heavy appropriation for arming the state but practically displaced the governor by appointing five loyal commissioners to control the fund and its expenditure in louisville the unionists secretly organized the loyal league which became very large 
but the secessionists also were noisy and numerous firm and defiant on the fifth of june rousseau started for washington to obtain authority to raise troops in kentucky at cincinnati he met colonel thomas j key then judge advocate of ohio on duty with general mcclellan key was alarmed and asked if it were not better to keep kentucky in the union by voting than by fighting rousseau replied as fast as we take one vote and settle the matter another in some form is proposed while we are voting the traitors are enlisting soldiers preparing to throttle kentucky and precipitate her into revolution as they have in the other southern states it is our duty to see that we are not left powerless at the mercy of those who will butcher us whenever they can key declared that he would ruin everything by his rashness by invitation rousseau called on the commander of the western department during the conversation mcclellan remarked that buckner had spent the previous night with him rousseau replied that buckner was a hypocrite and traitor mcclellan rejoined that he thought him an honorable gentleman they had served in mexico together and were old personal friends he added but i did draw him over the coals for saying he would not only drive the rebels out of kentucky but also the federal troops well sir said rousseau it would once have been considered pretty nearly treason for a citizen to fight the united states army and levy war against the national government when rousseau reached washington he found that colonel key who had frankly announced his determination to oppose his project was already there he had an interview with the president general cameron and mr seward the weather was very hot and cameron sat with his coat off during the conversation as usual proceeding to business mr lincoln had his little story to enjoy he shook hands cordially with his visitor and asked in great glee rousseau where did you get that joke about senator johnson the joke mr president was too good to keep johnson told it himself it was this dr john m johnson senator from paducah wrote to mr lincoln a rhetorical document in the usual style of the rebels in behalf of the sovereign state he entered his solemn and emphatic protest against the planting of cannon at cairo declaring that the guns actually pointed in the direction of the sacred soil of kentucky in an exquisitely pithy autograph letter mr lincoln replied that if he had known earlier that cairo illinois was in dr johnson's kentucky senatorial district he certainly should not have established either the guns or the troops there singularly enough for a keen sense of humor was very rare among our erring brethren johnson appreciated the joke while rousseau was urging the necessity of enlisting troops he remarked i have half pretended to submit to kentucky neutrality but in discussing the matter before the people while apparently standing upon the line i have almost always poked this word was not in the cabinet vocabulary general cameron looked inquiringly at mr lincoln who was supposed to be familiar with the dialect of his native state general asked the president don't you know what poke means why when you play marbles you are required to shoot from a mark on the ground and when you reach over with your hand beyond the line that is poking 
Cameron favored enlistments in Kentucky without delay. Mr. Lincoln replied, General, don't be too hasty. You know we have seen another man today, and we should act with caution. Rousseau explained, The masses in Kentucky are loyal. I can get as many soldiers as are wanted. But if the rebels raise troops while we do not, our young men will go into their army, taking the sympathies of kindred and friends, and may finally cause the state to secede. It is of vital importance that we give loyal direction to the sentiment of our people. At the next interview, the President showed him this endorsement on the back of one of his papers. When Judge Pertle, James Guthrie, George D. Prentice, Harney, the Speeds, and the Ballards shall think it proper to raise troops for the United States service in Kentucky, Lovell H. Rousseau is authorized to do so. How will that do, Rousseau? Those are good men, Mr. President, loyal men. But perhaps some of the rest of us, who were born and reared in Kentucky, are just as good Union men as they are, and know just as much about the state. If you want troops, I can raise them, and I will raise them. If you do not want them, or do not want to give me the authority, why, that ends the matter. Finally, through the assistance of Mr. Chase, who steadfastly favored the project, and of Secretary Cameron, the authority was given. A few Kentucky loyalists were firm and outspoken, but General Leslie Coombs was a good specimen of the whole. When asked for a letter to Mr. Lincoln, he wrote, Rousseau is loyal and brave, but a little too much for coercion for these parts. After Rousseau returned, with permission to raise twenty companies, the Louisville Courier, whose veneer of loyalty was very thin, denounced the effort bitterly. Even the Louisville Journal derided it until half a regiment was in camp. A meeting of leading loyalists of the state was held in Louisville at the office of James Speed, since Attorney General of the United States. Garrett Davis, Bramlett, Boyle, and most of the Louisville men were against the project. They feared it would give the state to the secessionists at the approaching election. Speed and the Ballards were for it. So was Samuel Lusk, an old judge from Garrard County, who sat quietly as long as he could during the discussion, then jumped up, and bringing his hand heavily down on the table, exclaimed, "'Can't have two regiments for the old flag? By blank, sir, he shall have thirty. A resolution was finally adopted that when the time came they all wished Rousseau to raise and command the troops, but that for the present it would be impolitic and improper to commence enlisting in Kentucky. Greatly against his own will, and declaring that he never was so humiliated in his life, Rousseau established his camp on the Indiana shore. After the election, some secession sympathizers, learning that he proposed to bring his men over to Louisville, protested very earnestly, begging him to desist, and thus avoid bloodshed, which they declared certain. "'Gentlemen,' said he, "'my men, like yourselves, are Kentuckians. I am a Kentuckian. Our homes are on Kentucky soil. We have organized in defense of our common country, and bloodshed is just the business we are drilling for. If anybody in the city of Louisville thinks it judicious to begin it when we arrive, 
I tell you before God you shall all have enough of it before you get through. The next day he marched his brigade unmolested through the city. Afterward, upon many battlefields, its honorable fame and Rousseau's two stars were fairly won and worthily won. End of chapter 12